Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome. Oh, you were going to do it. I see. This is such a terrible way to get going. I will not. I'm not going to oh rain on your God. parade. Take it away, my friends. I, I didn't have an intro, but man, talk about getting off to a great start. You know, a couple of minutes ago, we were just talking about how crazy our days have been and that we don't have a, a great outline. And here we go right from the jump. So I'll, I'll kick it off. Welcome. As always, the podcast is always up to speed with Formula One. Joining you as always is Mr. Mark Daly, Mr. Mark Hamilton. We are settling in four or five days out from a a very eventful British Grand Prix. And it's so funny. The overwhelming feedback that I had from so many of our listeners and our community this week was, I'm done with Silverstone. I'm done with that racing incident. I'm ready to move on. And it's really interesting because, and I didn't talk about this on the podcast last Sunday, but I carried a degree of anxiety into that show (laughs) that I've never had before. Like, honestly, when when we're getting ready for a podcast, I'm excited. Maybe I don't feel like I'm totally prepared. My notes aren't dialed in, but I've never had anxiety. And it was really because the racing incident happened, didn't feel good about it. And then the entire day, I just kept consuming more and more and more social media. And the social media was so divisive and so so violent in, in so many different ways. And of course there was a fallout all week and it wasn't ideal. So one of the commitments that we had tonight was when we were doing our spaces chat, guys, we're moving on so many other topics. And then you share the, the, the outline for the podcast tonight. And again, I get it. There's just so much to unpack still four or five days later, but what a week, what a race. The championship is completely up in the air. Once again, both the drivers and the constructors, we've been cautioning people about this for weeks. It was never a write-off. Mr. Max Verstappen was never going to run away with it, but here we are. My friend, all of that said, I'm how are good. You, you know, I, I, I'm lo- looking forward to getting this show going here today, kicking things off. It's been one of those crazy days, like since I got up this morning, just after 6 a.m., I've been running nonstop and I'm just happy to finally take like take a take a load off, sit down, sit here and talk about Formula One for the next hour, hour and a half or whatever it is. And it's so funny because I didn't get a chance to drop into the spaces uh, session a little bit earlier on. And so I, I completely missed out this moratorium on that incident. So, you know, to, to everybody that was on Twitter tonight, my, my apologies, because, you know, I'm a glass is half full guy. I, I always have been. I tend to be ridiculously uh, optimistic, probably even when I shouldn't be. But I've looked at this thing that even though, yes, it's it's become a little bit, I wouldn't say annoying, but it's, it's certainly had its uh, run its mileage let's uh, let's put it that way but i i've also seen it as the gift that kind of uh, keeps on giving because it really is one of those flashpoints in the season and we really haven't seen a situation like this before well we have but uh, not in a good many years and certainly not between two rival drivers in two different teams i mean we can go back to well, how many half a dozen instances uh, between uh, Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton when they were partnered together at uh, Mercedes? But 
the the only two well i mean there's several incidents i mean you can go back to senna and prost to japan in 1988 you can go to damon hill and michael schumacher in uh, in 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 australia in what was that 1994 and then jv and michael schumacher at Estoril in 97 so i mean these things have happened but just not uh, very often so i apo- i apologize and- to the select few that came out tonight uh, for this excuse me the spaces session and no, no apologies necessary. And you, you framed it perfectly, right? Like this is the type of fodder that sports radio lives for, which is this topic that yeah. you can continue to unpack it, unwind for days and days, especially when we're two weeks between Grand Prix. But you're absolutely right. I think the one thing that really surprised me was just, it, it was how visceral the debate became. And and like I said, I didn't feel great going into the podcast last Saturday, simply because I'd never seen anything quite like this. And it shouldn't have come as a surprise that contact finally happened. We all knew this was going to be happening. We've been talking about in the Spaces chats. We've been talking about on Twitter. You and I have been talking about on the show for Mm -hmm. months now that if you have two very, very competitive drivers that are battling for a championship, this is eventually going to come. This is just the outcome of racing. I think what was surprising was ultimately the knock-on downstream effects of that contact, which we're going to get into tonight. And I think we'll take it in a pretty moderate, level-headed kind of way. We're not going to get super combative or, uh, I, I would say, um, violent <laughs> ourselves in terms of our rhetoric, but definitely some stuff here that we probably want to unpack. One other comment I'll make real quick, mm-hmm. just because I am a super Drake nerd. Drake dropped a new track about 36 minutes ago. Thank you to my good friend Parsa for dropping me a line, reminding me of that. So Sweet. if you are a hip hop fan, if you are a music fan, uh, there's some new Drake out there to keep you uh, keep you going until he finally drops Certified Lover Boy, which... <laughs> it'll happen just like i think that's a great comparison because we know it's going to happen just like we do that something was going exactly. to happen between lewis and max verstappen i mean we saw it in bahrain we saw it in imola and then we've seen some races where one or the other had a slight advantage over the other so it was it was bound to happen in a 20 something odd race season i mean the final tally right. is still to be determined of course that something like this was going to be it was just going to happen because there have been times where they're really close. And I mean, the way that Lewis was all over the back of him, it was just uh, something that, that was going to happen. I mean, Mercedes uh, trackside engineering uh, director, Andrew Shovlin, he basically said the same thing as well, that it was inevitable, which I think uh, <laughs> it basically echoes everything that that, that everybody's talked about and realized uh, themselves. But just kind of going back to more of the fallout, and this is why I keep saying this is the, the gift that really keeps giving here, <laughs> is that it was interesting that Instagram post that Max made on Sunday night after the after the Grand Prix was over, he was still in hospital, he was still getting checked out, and he was uh, saying on Instagram and Twitter, wherever he posted this, that he thought that Lewis's post-race celebrations were, uh, were, were dis- uh, disrespectful, but he wasn't going to dwell on it, and he decided he was going to move on, but... Mercedes has said that they've only come out and celebrated because they they had been told by FIA and by Red Bull that Max was okay. He was uninjured. He was just in hospital getting uh, checked out. And sure, I can understand in the in the heat of the moment why everybody would get uh, upset and maybe uh, tensions would still be high. But I, I don't know why you would do otherwise. Yeah, I I very much agree with you. And let's be totally honest. One. It was very clear that Hamilton was concerned about Mm -hmm. Max after the contact. We heard it on the radio. We tweeted about it. The first thing he asked is, is Max okay? He gets the all clear that he's out of the car. Obviously, he was shooken up, possibly had a concussion. He wasn't looking great, but he was out of the car. He was standing under his own power. 
that was good that that was the first thing that that Lewis asked. And, and obviously it should be, it always mm-hmm. would be. But as a racing driver, the minute he understands that his competitor's healthy, he's out of the car, he's dialed back in. He has to be dialed back in because he's got how many places that he needs mm-hmm. to make up to get back into this race. And ultimately, I also... The more time passes, the less I believe that Hamilton's celebration was disrespectful. Look, he drove a lap of the circuit with a Union Jack. Again, this is his home race in front of his home fans. He didn't see them last year because of COVID. This is the first major sporting event in the UK that's been hosted in front of fans. You have 140,000 people there in 30 plus degrees Celsius weather, which is might as well be 50 degree Celsius weather for the rest of the world because the Brits aren't necessarily used to this type of heat. <laughs> he does a lap with the flag. He comes into Park Ferme. He jumps over the wall, waves the flag. The photographers surround him, and he goes in front of the crowd and celebrates with the trophy. I didn't. I don't think it was disrespectful. In fact, he understood. And to your point, the Merck team understood. The Mercedes team understood that. Hey, he's good. He's been checked out. They reported to the FIA. They reported to Massey. They reported to the stewards. Mercedes knew. I don't think it was disrespectful. And I don't want to be that guy that says, hey, go and look at go and look at Max in Bahrain last year. But there's instances where maybe Max wasn't necessarily so cautious and conservative in his approach to a celebration. But ultimately, I think that the emotions were running high. Max was shook up. He was frustrated. He was angry. He was seeing his championship lead dwindle in front of his eyes. He was seeing the race unfold while he's at the hospital. He's in a particularly emotional state, which I totally yeah. get. I just... Two, three, four, five days later, I just don't see that this this Mercedes celebration of Lewis Hamilton was even remotely disrespectful. Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, I know this is a pure speculation, but had this been at the the, the Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort, and which is going to be the first race there and since 1984, whether if the situation was completely flipped on its head what uh, Max would have done uh, otherwise. But anyways, a little bit of context. Uh, Mercedes ta- sorry, Mercedes team principal Toto Wolf said, quote, it's important to understand all the feedback we received. We had the feedback from senior management of Red Bull that Max was fine. Christian Horner mentioned it to to my, uh, Michael Massey, who's the uh, FIA race uh, director, on the intercom that he's unharmed and fine, and the FIA gave us similar feedback. So at no point would we have celebrated if Max would have been injured, and I think that is very important to understand. Perfect. So we can move on from that. So this I find kind of interesting because Toto keeps uh, he keeps talking about this and why wouldn't he? But he said that uh, he's uneasy about the scale of what he called Red Bull's personal attacks after the incident at the British Grand Prix. And uh, he says that he actually hopes that they can, res- what he said, restore a professional rivalry uh, between the between the two uh, teams. Anyways, he was talking to motorsport.com and uh, Toto had to say, quote, I think you can understand that from a competitor's point of view, the situation was upsetting. I can understand that. Nevertheless, the language that was used and making it so personal was a level that we have not seen in this sport before. End quote. Yeah, I mean, it uh, got really, really heated. (laughs) I mean, let's uh, put it that way. Yeah. I was actually somebody that was... I actually defended, and I'm trying to choose my words carefully here because I want to make sure that I articulate this correctly. Obviously, I think folks that listen to this call know that I've questioned Christian Horner's execution and his role in directing this team. I've been a big critic of Helmut Marko. But, you know, I I flash back to Sunday, and in the heat of the moment, I said, I kind of got where he was coming from, especially the comments that emanated out of that 
out of that wall, out of that paddock, out of that garage during the race itself. I get it. You know, you're in a situation where your key lead driver, that doesn't even matter. One of your drivers is in an incident where he's clearly shaken up, possibly as a concussion, he's taken to the hospital. It's the heat of the moment. You're emotional. You're frustrated. You're concerned. Yeah. You're talking about the championship. You're talking about the fact that this car might be a write-off. Can we even salvage the power unit? There's a lot of stuff going through your head. I, I think though that in hindsight, maybe I was even a little bit too a little bit too generous in my defense of Horner. And part of the reason I say that is as a professional, as an executive in the sport, your words carry much, much, much more weight than an analyst, a former driver, somebody that's sitting in the crowd, somebody tweeting yep. at home. You are a team principal representing that organization and your words carry weight. And I don't want to, for a second, suggest that it's Horner's fault that we saw that outpouring of racism through social media. But when you make comments like that and when Helmet Marco comes on and they make comments like he's reckless and he's got a unique specific driving style, inferring that it's a dangerous driving style. These types of comments aren't helpful. And I think it helps. It does to a degree help fuel some of these folks that jump on the train, but take it kind of in this really inappropriate, disgusting, disgusting racist bent. But I just think Christian Horner, it's not his fault that that crowd came out. But I think sometimes when you initiate the conversation using such decisive language, divisive mm-hmm. language, like he was reckless driving and specific type of style inferring that it's dangerous. And then even the comments from Helmut Marco a few weeks ago, suggesting that Alex Albon's career was ruined by Lewis Hamilton, you're constantly building this narrative and this upswell of negative sentiment towards Hamilton. And then unfortunately, there's always going to be this segment of the population that may not even be Formula One fans, but they can grab onto that and use that as fuel for really negative, unproductive rhetoric that was unfortunately directed at Lewis both that day and throughout the course of the week. And one of the things I'd seen as well is there's this, and again, it may not be significant, but this movement within uh, the fans that are going to be attending at Zanvoort that, hey, you know, we should be bringing tomatoes and throwing tomatoes at Lewis and all this really negative, really unfortunate rhetoric that I don't historically mm-hmm. associate with Formula One. And I just think for Christian Horner, you have to understand and to Helmut Marco as well, that your words carry weight. And it's one thing for a TV analyst to say, hey, you know, Mazapan's a reckless driver. You know what? I get it. It's an analyst. But when you're an executive of a team talking about a seven times world champion who has never, never, never been criticized for dangerous, reckless driving, that's that's pretty pretty unproductive territory to be walking into with these types of comments, regardless of how emotional you are. Yeah, I mean, uh, Toto even addressed it. He's kind of drawn a line underneath it now. He said, uh, quote, I think once the emotions are down, we will try to restore our professional relationship for the sake of Formula One. But beyond that, there were no discussions and don't need to be, end quote. So I I really don't know what to add uh, to that. I mean, the outbursts and just the way that all the negative stuff came out afterwards, I think was obviously it was uncalled for and obviously very unfortunate that it happened. And I, I seriously hope that they can restore some some kind of a professional, like he says, a professional re- uh, relationship uh, between the two. Because Absolutely. that's what the sport needs. They need a good, healthy rivalry that everybody's going to get pumped up and get jacked up about every time that these cars uh, get out on the track. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And this is maybe why I didn't feel so great last Saturday because to me, it's still a racing incident. Assign a little bit of fault here, a little bit of yep. fault there. I don't object to the penalty that Hamilton was awarded. What I didn't like was the vitriol mm-hmm. that came pouring out Absolutely. of both camps and social media after. I didn't feel good about that. Like I said, I didn't feel good coming into the podcast 
racing's supposed to be fun. Sport is supposed to be yep. fun. And I just, I didn't like the direction it was taken. And to your point, you look at these comments from Horner, I get it, heat of the moment, you're emotional, you're concerned about your driver, you're concerned about the championship, but sometimes specific words can be unproductive. And furthermore, let me be clear, I'm not blaming for a second, not blaming for a second the Red Bull camp or Horner for some of the racist uh, commentary that came out of social media. It just, when you have high level executives like this, you know what, attacking Hamilton in the way he was, it doesn't help. It helps to open up that gateway for those type of comments and to make it okay and to normalize that kind yeah, of attack. Yeah, unfortunately, you're, you're, you're right. Anyhow, uh, let's take a quick break here on the show. We'll come back and then we'll talk about, well, a couple more things sort of related to what we were talking about and then hopefully something <laughs> completely new. Anyways, we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back in just a moment. Passion drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the show. Mark and Mark Daly and Hamilton here on a very busy Thursday night. Ja I was going to say January. Gosh, you know, it feels like it could be January the way that the, the, the year's been going, not by the weather, just by, by, by the pace and the snowballing effect of the year. Anyways, it is July 22nd, 2021. It is the middle of the summer in the Northern Hemisphere. The weather has been glorious here on the West Coast of British Columbia. It has. It has. I mean, after that insane heat dome almost a month ago, three and a half weeks ago, yeah. the weather's been actually pretty glorious. I mean, we could do a with a little bit of rain, which seems ironic and counter you know, intuitive <laughs> uh, to come from the mouth of a person that lives in a city that that gets about 275 days of rain a year or something like that. But anyways, weather. 275. I know. I, I'm being It's a lot I was gonna say. that. It feels like that. <laughs> and I saw a story today, and I don't know that this is necessarily true, but I saw a story that it's been we've 37 days since we've had rain throughout the BC Lower Mainland, which is apparently a record, but it feels like it's been a while yeah. since we've had a wash of rain in our, our, our It does feel parched out there. Um, anyways, yeah. let's, um, there, there are a couple of uh, things I just want to sort of tidy up when we, you know, to, to go on or before we can move on about this, because there's a couple more comments I want to talk about. And this whole thing about like um, team principals lobbying the stewards during the, in real time during the race and stuff like that. Totally. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm getting so excited. I'm choking my on my words here. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Total Wolf, uh, the uh, Mercedes team principal, he stepped up. He's backed his driver. He's backed his guy. And he said that Lewis Hamilton is the opposite of a dirty F1 driver, which I think echoes what uh, we, we've been saying. And again, 
we're not trying to come off as Hamilton uh, apologists, but I think you just have to take a look objectively at the body of work that Lewis Hamilton has done in Formula One during his career. And I don't really think that there's any other way that you can can look at this. I, I think that he tried to race Max hard. I think he missed the apex of the corner. I think he went in too fast. And maybe it was totally a little agree. bit misguided. And, well, hey, it was racing. And sometimes these things happen in racing. And yeah, it was unfortunate for Max. It was unfortunate for Red Bull. I mean, it flipped the championship on its head. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I went back because I think I said on the show on Sunday night that I immediately messaged you when I was watching the race that, oh, I'm putting that 100% on Lewis. But over the course of time, as I settled down and the adrenaline kind of, you know, boiled away a little bit and I looked at it objectively, I realized that it was a little bit more nuanced than that. I mean, certainly he takes the the proportion of the, of, of the blame going into that, but yeah, I, I just don't know how you can disagree or even take that stance that Lewis Hamilton is a dirty driver. I does not compute. Yeah, completely agree. And I, I think obviously people and folks that have been listening to this show for a while probably recognize that I'm a Lewis fan. Um, I'm happy to see him win. But at the same time, I've been crystal clear this entire championship that ultimately I don't care who wins as long as it's competitive, as long as it's fun, as long as it's close. I would rather see Max Verstappen win in the last race of the season than to see Lewis win with three or four races left. That's not good for the championship. Seeing it go down to the wire and seeing somebody like Max Verstappen win, that's, that's good. It's good for the sport. It's compelling from a broadcast perspective. It gives us selfishly, it gives us a lot to talk about. But I agree. I just think this was a mistake. I think he was a little fast, miscalculated potentially the toe he had. And I think ultimately he he made some contact with, with, with Max Verstappen. But at the same time, you could also argue that Max maybe didn't give him enough space, et cetera, et cetera. I think at the end of the day, what is crystal clear or should be crystal clear to anybody that knows Formula One is that that was not a calculated move by Hamilton. He did not go into that corner with the expectation or the objective of making contact with Max. He's not about to throw away his own race because making contact could be hyper unpredictable. Mm-hmm. You could make contact and end up with a puncture while Max gets away unscathed. You could make contact and have significant aero damage that requires you to res- retire when Max maybe gets a puncture but still finishes the race and scores points. There's no way Hamilton in any galaxy in any alternative universe is going to go into that corner with the intense or anticipation intention of making contact. I think he went hot, maybe it misanticipated the toe, whatever the case, I don't think it was intentional. The one thing I would also add as well is that as time has gone by over the course of this week, we've had more and more and more former drivers chime in on this. And overwhelmingly now the sentiment seems to be, at least from a former F1 driver perspective, this is a racing mm-hmm. incident. It was a racing incident. It was a racing incident. It wasn't dirty. It was a mistake. Hamilton got a penalty. It was one step away from being a much more severe penalty. And maybe we can debate the severity of the penalty. Should it have been a stop-go penalty, a five-second penalty, a 10-second penalty? Seems to be fair. That said, Hamilton served the penalty. He didn't complain. And he fought back and he won the race. So you can't complain. But I kind of get it from a, a Red Bull fan perspective. You know what? We're in a close championship. You see Hamilton chip away at it by 25 points. But I just can't believe that anyone who knows the sport or has been watching it for a while could honestly believe that was a calculated move. By yeah, Hamilton. I mean, he, Danny Ricardo. I mean, he basically said in, in as many words that Hamilton went too hot into that corner into Cosps uh, and went before he hit uh, 
hit max. But yeah, I mean, doing that on purpose, I mean, the, the whisks or the, the risks really outweigh the returns because this is, you know, Absolutely. especially with these cars that if you sneeze at them the wrong way, something's going to break off uh, the, the, the body work. Absolutely. Anyways, two points on that. And then I want to move ahead. Number one, sure. the, the people that have been getting in touch with us over the past you know, two, three races or whatever, since Max has been opening up that gap. And I don't want to say that they've maybe tuned out, but there was definitely a little bit of concern that maybe he might start to walk away with that uh, championship. I hope that maybe that this is reinvigorated, maybe reengaged some yeah. of these people that maybe we're starting to wonder if this might be over in a couple of races. So that has definitely hit that reset button. And then also, if we've gotten a show and a half of material out of this now, I'm just wondering what the hell are the the DTS guys going to do when season four comes out next spring? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So I actually made notes of that. I can't believe I didn't bring this up. This last race was absolute fodder yep. for Drive to Survive. They, the whole Netflix crew, the box, because I believe it's produced by Box to Box yep, Films, that's right. they must just be salivating at the storylines that they can unwind by this. And I don't know how much crew they had there. I'm sure it was pretty significant regardless just because of the fact that it's Lewis's homecoming. He hasn't raced in front of his home crowd in two years. We knew there was going to be 140,000 fans there. So either way, it was going to be a compelling storyline for an episode of Drive to Survive. But you can start in your head piecing together what they could be assembling for a season four. But absolutely. And I can't even imagine how much footage we're going to see from the Horner camp, <laughs> from the Wolf camp next February that we weren't privy to this year. Because that was one of the things that was so exciting about season three was holy moly, I had no idea that conversation happened. I had no idea they felt this way about this scenario. I cannot wait to see how this plays out in Drive to Survive Season 4. That's a great call. Yeah, that's, it's, it's awesome. And you know, some of the thing that was really, really cool is a lot of like the fan media that got posted. You know, we, you talked about it, that one... Uh, that one uh, video that somebody who was sitting like two, three rows up at, at, at Cop's Corner there, just a little bit uh, over from where Max hit the barrier, the tires there. I mean, that was crazy. I watched that video yeah. probably at least 10 times. And every time I was absolutely astonished by the yeah. j- just the violence of that 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 impact. So, yeah. And shout out, shout out to Charlie for tweeting that one to our main Twitter account because I hadn't seen that. Yep. Same. I, I must have watched it three or four times. And it's this crazy moment where you see you have this brief split second where Hamilton and Verstappen are coming into the corner. The crowd begins to erupt because they see that there's a potential overtake happening. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden... All of a sudden, Max is just sliding towards them at an unbelievable rate. And you can hear the gas in the crowd. It's like the energy and the oxygen is just sucked out of the crowd. And then after he makes contact, people are looking at each other and they're looking at their bodies to see if everyone's unscathed. Because as he came in, he threw up a ton of dirt and gravel. It was like shrapnel almost flying through the air. Exactly. Exactly. You know, not not trying to be a little bit uh, too facetious or condescending here, but it kind of makes you wonder if they are going to get a ton of fodder out of this race for season four of DTS. Makes you wonder if Max Verstappen's want to maybe get off the fence and get involved uh, with, uh, you know, this show or the, you know for for season four because you know he is basically the only driver that does not participate in uh, gen uh, in, in drive to survive at the moment. 
What a great point. And that's not something I'd considered. So for those of you at home that are maybe wondering why you didn't see a lot of Max in season one, season two, season three, it's because he's opted to sit out. He doesn't participate. But ultimately, this could be problematic in terms of shaping the narrative for season four, which is obviously the Mercedes team, Total, Lewis, are actively involved in interviews and sharing footage and just generally being involved and engaging with the process of Drive to Survive. Max has made the decision not Mm -hmm. to. Christian Horner is clearly involved. Oh, yeah, he's very into it. (laughs) Oh, he loves it, man. But in terms of shaping the storyline and the narrative, if you're giving access to Lewis and to Total and they're they're sharing their comments and their feedback and their thoughts and being interviewed and Max opts to sit out, it changes the narrative. So it'll also be interesting to see how how Box to Box Films and Netflix are able to share the story and share this journey next season if Max doesn't participate. Because you're really talking about somebody that's operating in isolation, whereas when you're talking about Lewis, he's sitting in front of you addressing those questions on camera. You know, I think that they did a really good job back in 2018 when they came out with season one because the two protagonists that that year were Ferrari and Mercedes, and neither of those teams took part. So any footage you saw of Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, Valtteri Bottas, or uh, Kimi Raikkonen, or anybody involved with those teams, was just a stock footage and they kind of spliced it in here or there. But I think they did a remarkable job to kind of work around that. But it it was pretty obvious, but it it really did add something for seasons two and three that you had the full cooperation of Mercedes, full cooperation of Ferrari. But then again, as now Formula One has kind of evolved and Ferrari's kind of dropped off a little bit and Red Bull's been on the ascendancy in the last uh, season in a bit. And now they're the main contender, the main rival to Mercedes. It, it It is a bit interesting that, you know, Max is consciously going out of his way not to participate. So, yeah, it makes you wonder if he'll want to get uh, involved. Anyway, so kind of moving away from the incident itself, but maybe to some of the sidebar ancillary issues that are going around. And so one comment that came out from Christian Horner says that he thinks it's unacceptable that the Formula One stewards can be lobbied by competitors in real time while they're reviewing a situation and coming to making their conclusions and ultimately a uh, you know a decision and a penalty whatever the case may may be and he was very angry and upset the way that uh, total wolf was able to speak to the stewards while they were deliberating what to do uh, regarding that incident between the crash between lewis and max verstappen last weekend and then wolf was actually advised over the team radio by michael massey the f1 race director to go and actually speak to the uh, stewards so Horner actually got off his butt, got off the pit wall, went down to the steward's <laughs> office himself to make sure that Red Bull's interest, his views, and their perspective was not ignored. So anyways, uh, Horner had to say uh, the following, quote, I saw Toto, who was lobbying the stewards, and I heard he was going there to do it, so I went to make sure that our view was represented. Yeah. I don't think that it's right that team principals should be able to go and lobby the stewards that should be locked away, or they should be locked away so that they are not influenced. For me, it was unacceptable that he had gone up to lobby the stewards. I wanted to make sure that there was a balanced opinion given rather than trying to influence pressure on the stewards to make a menial sentence, end quote. And again, I mean, um, not taking Christians or Red Bull's side specifically, but just from you know an objective point of view, 
then I guess I'm kind of taking his, uh, his, his, you know, his side because I'm going to agree with him. But I mean, you shouldn't be able in any sport to be able to lobby the officials. I mean, should you like as, as a basketball player in the NBA, be able to lobby the referee because you don't agree with a foul or, you know, in the NFL, did he have, uh, was he inbounds or out of bounds when he caught that pass? Did he cross the plane of the goal line? You know, whatever the case may be, soccer, was that a penalty? Was that, you know, whatever the case may be. It's hard enough for the men and women that are charged to officiate these sports at, at, at any level, but especially the, you know, the higher the level the gets and the faster and the quicker and everything that it moves and, and the stakes and the money and everything, the prestige that becomes involved, it just... It, it, it just becomes a little bit odious if if people from one side or another, and I'm not going to really put Toto on blast. I mean, Horner's already done that. He did what I think was the right thing to do. If you're Red Bull, I mean, if you see your rival down there, you know, get out there, get in the room as well and uh, and make your voice heard. But, you know, I, I think he has a very, very valid point here. I completely agree. I actually totally agree with Christian Horner in this case, which is one, the stewards have to have the opportunity to function in isolation. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll put you on blast a little bit here because you made that great comment about <laughs> the NBA referees. Clearly, clearly, and I'm just joking here, but clearly you've never watched an NBA game because 90% of an NBA broadcast is LeBron, Kyle Lowry, Chris Paul, aggressively lobbying the referees. And again, I'm a fan of all of those players. I wish they didn't do it and I don't like to see it, but this is a very close proximity to that, which is in this case, Total Wolf went to the steward's office, opened the door and started lobbying them in real. Yeah. This is like compromising a crime scene. Like they need the opportunity to effectively digest and process the evidence in front of them. Now you made a great point as well, which is ultimately Michael Massey sent him to the stewards. <laughs> and I think the context here is pretty important that he sent them, he, I think he sent Toto to the stewards out of frustration because we joke so much about the fact that Toto was hammering him with emails, probably sliding into his DMs, calling him on WhatsApp, Telegram, Viber, whatever, whatever means possible. He was trying to get his message through to Michael Massey. And I think Massey in a flippant, frustrated way says, you know what? Damn it, Toto, just go see the stewards. <laughs> and he probably regretted it the minute probably, he Probably, yeah. Toto, whoosh, straight to the stewards. Christian Horner hears, well, I need to be there to provide a balanced approach to this. Whoosh, He's in the office. With, I don't know why I'm making sense, <laughs> but then he's in the office with the stewards. And the other complicated part of this too, is that even post race, when he was being challenged on this, Michael Massey said, no, it's totally okay. They need to be able to have the conversation. And then he quickly backed. Oh yeah, totally. I think yeah. The FIA, the stewards, formula one, they realized that, Hey, this isn't a good look. It's a really bad look if they're able to penetrate that steward's office. So hopefully to your point, Going forward, we're going to be able to allow those stewards to operate um, with full integrity because I think the worst thing that you would want is a scenario where a driver is clearly at fault, a team principal is able to get into the office, get in their ears, and there's no penalty because then all of a sudden the entire integrity of the race is thrown into question because the team principals are so effectively able to lobby. So I totally agree with Christian Horner on this one. The other piece too is 
Michael Massey got a ton of negative press and criticism in terms of how he managed this race. And for those of you that don't know, he replaced Charlie. He was close friends with him unexpectedly because of Charlie's death in late 2018, 2019, mm-hmm. had to tell the Ram. Uh, he ran the 2019 season, 2020 hit. It was COVID. This year's COVID. Like He's had a rough go of it himself, but he got some serious, serious bad press and some heat for the way that this race was was ultimately handled. And it wasn't necessarily undue. I think he's ultimately in a tough position, but I do agree it is, with Christian It is, but Horner. some of this stuff yeah. is common sense stuff, right? And and I mean, totally, we, we've talked totally. about it. We're talking about it now. I and mean, we talked about it, uh, you know, after Austria. So yeah, I mean, it is not an easy job, but <laughs> certainly there, there are some, there's definite room for improvement. Let's put it that way. I would just add one final thing is that if any good came out of this whole situation, Mm -hmm. it is that eternally we have the total wolf email meme that will live on (laughs) forever. And maybe all of this was worth it because we have a great new meme to share on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit for the rest of time. You know, just before we slide into a break here, Mark, you know, you're talking about like the, <laughs> the whole thing, like the emails to Michael from, from Toto and the the DMs and the WhatsApp. I would love to see like screenshots of like their their WhatsApp conversations like, dude, bro, what the yeah. fuck? You know, well, did you see yeah, that yeah. bleep? You know, I, I'd love to yeah. see. I don't think that Toto would necessarily stoop to the it's level of like a... Animated yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. That, that's right. I mean, I don't think the... You know, I, I would expect, I would hope that, that Toto's a little bit more mature it is whatsapp conversations that you and i are when we're messaging each other back and forth but it would be kind of funny to see nonetheless anyways let's try and drag this conversation up a notch or two and uh, we'll do so just on the other side of a quick break so don't go away we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And well, okay, we've only been talking about that incident for 35 minutes now. So what, what do you say we go? Got time for two more stories? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just messing with you guys. I wouldn't do that. No, we, we need to get on to Valtteri Bottas <laughs> speculation. We need to spend 20 minutes talking about where he's going to be. You know, I, I hate to do this to you, my friend, but I have no Valtteri Bottas stories locked and loaded tonight. I I, I, I apologize. Do you have a George Russell story? That's no, no, but I do have a Kimi <laughs> Raikkonen story for you, but I don't have my Kimi book of haikus. So, I mean, I could go and grab <laughs> it, but there are other things to talk about. You know, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed about last weekend, and unfortunately, sort of kind of maybe got pushed to the side a little bit was the whole the, the whole major right. concept the whole concept of the sprint races and I, I mean we talked about it on Sunday but it, it really became li- li- like an asterisk for the entire weekend it became a little footnote and we we only really talked about it very briefly but it's interesting the uh, McLaren team principal Andreas Seidel said that uh, it He's glad and he's happy that they did try out the sprint format at Silverstone, but he believes that the the format should be reserved for specific circuits only. 
Now, I'm going to take that uh, at face value because obviously Andreas Seidel is obviously a little bit more experienced on trackside and in motorsport than I am. But for for me, from you know this side of the uh, of the screen, let's put it that way, looking at it from from a fan's point of view, I'd say it's almost a little bit too early to tell. I mean, I don't think sprint racing would obviously, or the the sprint format would work at say Monaco, for example. But I, I'm right. sure that, and and I love the concept that you came up with with the majors. You know, you pick three four races a year. Maybe uh, the USA, maybe Great Britain, maybe Japan, wherever where, wherever it is, kind of spread them out so you have it one geographic uh, region wherever the where, wherever the calendar is. But it's kind of interesting to to hear that. But I I really enjoyed the format. It was it made obviously for a very very busy weekend of uh, viewing, and uh, just in in general to schedule in. I, I mean, from a positive point of view, I mean it was cool to be able to go on Friday night. And sit down and watch the qualifying session, then have the sprint race on Saturday, and then have the Grand Prix on Sunday. My own take was I still like the way that they had the qualifying on Friday. I would seated everything for the sprint race. I thought that the sprint race being approximately one third full race distance, I think, was about uh, perfect. And you could tell after a while that they weren't going to push it too much further to save the machinery and maybe risk any uh, in- incidents on track. And I think that's that they have to find that sort of sw- uh, sweet spot. Spot because kind of give them the the opportunity to try out there, go out there, and and, and do something on the track. But after a while, you know, they are going to try and protect the cars as well. But I think overall, I came away with a very positive view of the experience, and I'm eager to see it again. And Mons is going to be the next one up, so can't come soon enough. Absolutely. And I totally agree with your comment a couple of moments ago about the fact that we probably didn't serve this experience with the coverage it deserved in our most recent podcast. Yeah, it's like weird. Said, it's like really, something more noteworthy happened last yeah. weekend. Yeah. And, and shame on us because that was something I was actually really excited to talk about. Same. I was eager for your opinion. It didn't happen. So when I saw you built out the uh, the agenda and the outline for today's show, I was really excited to see that you tacked this one on. But I love the format. I'm not suggesting it's, it's perfect. I've kind of flip-flopped back and forth in terms of Ultimately, should pole be awarded for Friday? Should it be awarded for Saturday? Should more championship points be awarded on Saturday versus less? Like, I think there's still some opportunity to have a conversation, but as a as a concept, I love it. And I totally get it from a business perspective. And like I said before, I saw that tweet where somebody tweeted like, guys, don't you understand Formula is only doing this to sell more tickets and get more eyeballs on the TV? I'm like, of course, yes, that's, that's why <laughs> the whole this point. entire sport exists. Of course, that's what they're trying to do. And I'll be totally honest. I tuned in to Formula One live on Friday. If I watch if I watch free practice, I'm sure as hell not watching it live, and I'm probably watching a highlight package late Friday night before I go to bed. I'm not tuning in live. And the other thing I'll share, and you've been to a ton of Formula One races as well, nobody is at the track on Friday. Mm-hmm. Unless they buy the four-day pass and they're super devoted, there's nobody. It's a kind of smattering of people within the grandstand. So for, for Silverstone to have 100,000 people there on Friday night, that's incremental ticket sales. That's gate revenue that they wouldn't otherwise have had. And we don't necessarily know what the global TV audience or the numbers were for Friday and Saturday because the networks typically don't break those out. They typically just break out the Grand Prix on Sunday. 
I tuned into all of it and I don't necessarily know that I would if I tuned in live. And again, I'm, I'm afraid I, I'm always worried that I have coworkers and peers and superiors listen to the podcast. <laughs> but on the Friday, I was also excited that the qualifying session was Friday night in the UK, which meant that it was the morning our time. So I was actually able to watch at least Q3 live. In fact, I actually had a meeting and shared my screen with my coworkers as, as, as I devilishly grinned on this podcast, <laughs> but they, they thoroughly enjoyed watching Q3 with me. So I love the format. It's not perfect. I, I hope they continue to refine it. I also really do love the idea that this event, this format should be reserved for some of your premium tracks, your premium yeah. events. Silverstone, it's a perfect fit. Monza, it's a perfect fit. I would suggest Coda would be a great fit as well. Now, I had somebody slide me a DM earlier today, um, and they'd asked very specifically that their name not be mentioned on air. Um, they're indicating that it will absolutely be either Coda or Abu Dhabi that is going to feature the next sprint qualifying weekend. So I would presume it's probably going to be Coda, but the reason they're suggesting possibly Abu Dhabi is because if the championship is close, they kind of want to create a super compelling mega weekend mm. to kind of close the season. But my sense at this point is it's probably going to be Coda, and I'm totally cool with that because I think it's a great track that will really function well for this format. But yeah, totally. I love the weekend. Yeah. Not perfect. I'm excited to see how it continues to evolve. Well, you know, I, I have to admit that I went into the weekend, I wouldn't say with um, a little bit of skepticism. I'd say it was a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of reservation, just because of that really botched up attempt to try and change the the qualifying format right. four or five years ago, whenever it was, and they abandoned it after only two or three races and went back to the to the traditional final step. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, we don't really need to rehash it, but it, it was it was a miserable failure. So I, I was I was a little bit more positive about this, but I was I was guarded in my expectations because it, it's one thing to come up with these plans and then see how it how it how it comes off in reality. But I think it went uh, pretty good. So I'm looking forward to see it again at Monza, you know, several weeks from now. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's it, it's a good call to maybe just hold out for the time being and see how the championship uh, develops and then decide to do either a Coda or at Abu Dhabi. And I, I don't know, but I mean, if they were to skip Coda and do it at Abu Dhabi because the championship is too close, I understand it would be kind of a mega weekend, but is it almost too much of a good thing? I, I don't yeah, know, but it, it is awesome. I mean, I totally agree. I, th I think the Circuit of the Americas is a, is a great venue. I think it would be a fantastic uh, track to have a sprint uh, qualifying on. So I, I definitely see the the the, the logic and the uh, the desire to do it there. All right, um, I'm just uh, pulling up something. So the uh, Formula One uh, this week, uh, actually today, earlier today, has uh, they they just confirmed that Monza is going to be the the next um, sprint. Sorry, qualifying. I may have blown that. I may have blown that. No, it's all good. Myself. No, but uh, I mean they they have. Um, They've just released the schedule, so I mean they, they've basically come out to what's uh, going to happen. So we're going to have a fi sorry an eighteen lap sprint race, and it's going to start at four thirty p.m. on Saturday. They expect it to run about thirty minutes, so it'll be done by about five p.m. local time. And then Sunday's Grand Prix is going to go with three p.m. Uh, local time, so it's kind of cool. I kind of really like that late afternoon. The, the the timing that they had at uh, at Silverstone. I, I don't know why I, it just I worked really well. 
I loved it. One of the other thoughts I had, and I don't know if I've shared this before, one of the other things that I think really works well with sprint qualifying is it's a really tight, concise, digestible package. You're talking about an event that's less than 30 minutes. It's basically the length of a sitcom. And if you're talking about packaging up Formula One in a way that's consumable and accessible to younger fans that maybe don't have a long, a long kind of patient, uh, sense of attention. I think it's a really great way to bring in fans. And it's something mm-hmm. that I'm also, again, excited to see. And I'll be honest, I've been watching Formula One like you for 30 plus years, spent years watching it from the UK and the heart of motorsports country. I'll be honest, there's some times when I struggle to get through an hour 30, an hour 40 of a Grand Prix, especially if the outcome is predetermined by the lap 10 mark. Like I struggle with that sometimes. I just think a 20 or 30 minute sprint qualifying event is so short, so concise and so unpredictable. It's it's must see TV. So again, I like the format, but I'm also super pumped. And I think we knew this was going to happen. So it's not a surprise, but I'm excited for Italian fans. I'm excited that the next uh, sprint qualifying weekend is going to be at a track as phenomenal as Monza. It's an ultra high speed track. I don't know yet, and and for anyone that's in Italy right now, you know who you are. If you could drop us a DM and let us know how we're looking from a spectator perspective, (laughs) it was great to have fans at Silverstone. The only track potentially on the calendar that is better served by having a big crowd is Monza. And I think you would remember 2019 to see Charles Leclerc win for Ferrari at this track one of the greatest moments in the last four or five years. And I would love yeah, absolutely. to see Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, and, and then also last year as well, it, it, Imola at Mugello, you know, we had three races in Italy. I mean, we, we had a handful of fans that, you know, yeah, yeah absolutely. Deserved, so, I mean, I'm just taking a look at the schedule now. So, First of August next weekend, we have the Hungarian Grand Prix coming up. And then uh, 29th of August is Spa after the summer break. Then we go to um, the Dutch Grand Prix uh, beginning of September, Labor Day weekend. And then it's not till the weekend of uh, the 12th of September is when we get to, to, to Italy. So it's it's a little ways out there. But I think that certainly it has, it, it's really whetted my appetite for more of that and hopefully we'll see people in attendance there because that is just one of those fantastic grand prix especially if uh, ferrari's uh, doing well and that's uh, something that still kind of blew my mind that they were so competitive uh, last weekend and uh, well that's a different discussion but hey let's uh, take a little or not a little break a quick break here and we'll come back and then want to talk a little bit about uh danny ricardo so we'll do that on the flip side so don't go away we'll be right back all right well welcome back to the show everybody and we've actually burned through a lot of these stories uh, a a lot quicker than i had expected which is all good which is uh, great because we got some good messages and some emails to uh, discuss as well now, Danny Ricardo. Now, now, this is a guy I feel particularly bad for. I'm I'm not surprised to hear him say that he's beyond the past point of uh, frustration with the struggles, with the the problems he's had at the McLaren this year. And he's just said that he's finally accepted that it's a part of life, and it's going to going to be an ongoing challenge uh, going forward. And it is. It, it it's it's frustrating. I think that is the perfect word that uh, he's used because I think we've seen most guys that have switched teams settle in and kind of find the sweet spot. I mean, Fernando's doing well at Alpine. 
even Seb seems right, to have found right. uh, you know a nice uh, point or a good place to be at uh, Aston Martin. Carlos Sainz has been pretty good for Ferrari, and you know you can keep uh, going on and on uh, about some of these other drivers. But Ricardo, I mean, considering how long he's been in Formula One, considering the record that he has, that I'm still surprised that uh, he's just hasn't been able to, to to figure it out. Anyways, Danny Rick had to say the following. And uh, that was, quote, it is still definitely at times frustrating, but I'm probably past the point of being frustrated. I think now it's kind of a reality that I'm still needing to find some more and just be at one with the car. That's probably the best way to put it. So I guess it's not going to be anything new for me now. I know I'm aware that it's probably going to be a process. I didn't panic at the beginning, but I was aware that I was losing ground. And I was just trying to understand where I'm losing and what it is that I need to help me get to know where, you know, there's three or four tenths of a lap more end quotes yeah i would say i'm not particularly concerned about ricardo i think folks in the media i think analysts folks fans followers on twitter are excited to talk about this that it's the end of ricardo mclaren needs to do something mclaren needs to make a change Ultimately, Ricardo's tossed into a tough position, and we talked about this. He spent two years with Renault. That never seemed to be a marriage that it was destined to last a long time, not because there was necessarily any bad blood or a poor sentiment between him and the team, but I don't think that's necessarily where he wanted to be. And he being at Renault was really just a byproduct of the breakdown of his relationship with Red Bull. I think ultimately he left on a high note. He scored a couple of podiums at the back end of that run with Renault. Those plus the podium that Acon scored were the first that Renault had enjoyed since they returned to Formula One in 2015. So I think he left on a high note. Comes into the McLaren situation. It's a new chassis, new car, new aero philosophy. It's also a car that's being paired with an engine that was never designed for that car or vice versa. And then he's also put in a situation where he's racing next to a teammate, Lando, who's developing this surge of popularity both in the US and in the UK globally and is also performing very well. But he's also much more familiar with that car because he was so instrumental in the development of said car. Now, I think a lot of people are pointing to last weekend and saying, look, Ricardo scored fifth. He had a great points finish. He was one spot behind Lando Norris. But when you look closer, the truth is in the pudding. Now, I don't know that that's an expression. But what I mean by that is he finishes 42 seconds off of Hamilton, but he's still 14 seconds behind Lando. So again, great job. He's deep in the points. I Probably a big confidence builder for him. I think he's going to improve. I think the challenge, though, when you hinted on this a couple of minutes ago, and this is some comments that, that Daniel Ricciardo made during the Monaco race weekend, is... He was frustrated because Lando is sharing telemetry data with him, which, by the way, isn't necessarily always the case. Drivers will not necessarily always share telemetry and data with their with their teammate. Now, it's typically more common than not. But if you look back to 2016, Nico and Lewis definitely weren't sharing data. But anyways, he was looking at Lando's data because he couldn't understand how Lando was putting so much time between the two of them lap over lap. And what he was finding was one, Lando was breaking much, 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 much later in a corner. And on top of that was carrying much more speed through the corner. And that could be one that Lando's car was better dialed in for his driving style. It could be that Lando was more comfortable with the car. It could be that he was just more familiar with the aero setup. But while Ricardo started closing some of that gap, there's still a lot there. Now, that said, Ricardo didn't forget how to drive a Formula One car in the offseason. He's going to get there. I have no doubt about it. Now, 
The other comment I have to add here, and I promise I'll move on real quick, is during the post-race session on Sky TV, Will Buxton and Alex Albon were interviewing uh, Fernando Alonso. And they were talking to to Fernando about his recent performance improvements, his recent uh, performance gains, the fact that his form looks so much better, he's much more confident on track. And one of the comments that he made that really struck with me is that you know through the first four or five or six races of the season – he was driving based on input and feedback that the team were giving him. He came in there. He wasn't familiar with the gearbox, the mm-hmm. power unit, the aero design, or the chassis. So he was driving the car based on what he was being told to do by the team. And he said it got to a certain point where he's like, you know what? Enough's enough. I am now going to drive this car based on my experience and my feel. And he said that as soon as he did <laughs> that, his form improved. He's like, you know what? I can, I trust myself. I can feel the car. I know what I'm doing. I don't need to listen to this input. And my point being that Daniel's probably in a tough position where he's getting feedback from the mechanics. He's getting feedback from the engineers, the aerodynamics are coming to him. He's looking at Lando's telemetry. He's probably getting feedback and input from a hundred different sources. And I think he might just be getting a little bit overloaded and a little bit frustrated, which is why recently he did comment that, look, I just need to step away. And I think the summer break will be really good for him. I especially if he can put in a good performance at Hungary, because at least he can go into the break saying, Hey, a couple of really strong points finishes. I'm building on that. I've got a good Yeah. You know, that, that's great. That's uh, it's awesome when you get uh, comments like that from, from a driver. And it's kind of funny that a driver that, I mean, love him or hate him. I mean, for Fernando obviously has a ton of uh, experience driving a, a racing car. So I find that a very interesting admission that he was getting. I mean, you would expect that he'd be getting a lot of feedback from the team initially, just based on the fact that it's a new team and he's been out of the sport for a, for a little while. But it, it is interesting that he, he got to the point where it's just like, you know, instinct sort of just uh, takes over. And it's just like, you know what, exactly. I, I, I should be yeah. able to figure this out on my own. And then if I need some feedback, I should be able to get it from the team rather than the other way around. I mean, that's, you know, really, really fascinating. Absolutely. Cool. Totally okay, so great. the next one is kind of uh, interesting. Uh, this is uh, from uh, Kimi Raikkonen, who's urged the Alpha Formula One team to uh, wake up. And uh, find a little bit, well, find not a little bit, but find more performance from their C41. So anyways, uh, Kimby had to say, uh, quote, maybe or maybe we need to make the car fast. It's simple. It's impossible to fight against them. And uh, this is uh, you know, against uh, the other teams, obviously. Same this, same that, and try to fight with the other cars. Come on, we've got to wake up and do something, end quote. So kind of a, a, a typical... Um, Kimmy quotes sort of not really a lot of in it, but you know, you can tell that there's a bit of, I don't think it's maybe urgency, but it it seems like a bit of frustration and a bit of, um, what do you want to call it? Well, obviously he's trying to motivate them, but you you can tell that he's not a hundred percent happy. He's trying to really get them to wake up and smell the coffee to try and do something to get this car to go, go faster and perform better. It's funny that you bring this story up because this is a hot button issue with the Spaces group historically. Not so much his performance this year because I'm not necessarily sure that people were expecting mm-hmm. a whole lot out of Alfa Romeo. Although potentially Alfa Romeo could be one of those teams that benefits from the changes to the technical regulations going into 2022. But my assumption was that 
they were better last year than they were this yeah. year. My comment instinctively was going to be like, look, they've actually, their performance is actually weakened. But if you actually look back at their performance last year, you know what, Kimi Räikkönen, mm-hmm. he's been in the points once this year with uh, a 10th place finish. He didn't get into the points last year until the ninth race when he scored a ninth place finish. He had two ninth place finishes last year. He was only in the points twice. He finished with four points overall. Giovinazzi had two 10th place finishes, a ninth place finish. He scored four points. So really from a trajectory perspective, they're relatively on par. They're basically performing the same way they did last year, which is a little bit disappointing. Now, last year, obviously, they were saddled with that problematic Ferrari power unit. And by problematic, I mean, obviously, they were suffering in the same way that Ferrari was because they were rocking the same Ferrari power unit in 2019. So the penalty applied to Ferrari was equally, equally as problematic and challenging for them. But Ultimately, they've made zero strides forward this year. Now, I know they're not providing any more upgrades to this car. Whatever upgrades they brought this year were pretty limited. But I kind of get it from his perspective that they're seemingly just treading water. And you don't seem to hear a lot from that organization in terms of ambitions. And ultimately, it could be that they're in very much the same position as Haas. And they just haven't openly acknowledged that, hey, look, Sears are right off. It is what it is. We're not going to score a ton of points. We're not going to cash in on a bunch of championship money. We're putting all of our resources towards 2022. And Haas was criticized a little bit for that earlier this year when they made that admission that, hey, we're not going to invest in this car. We're all in on 2022. Our resources are limited. And as much as Alfa Romeo has this big glamorous banner attached to it, it has some backing from Ferrari. It's still ultimately run by the Sauber Motorsports Group, which isn't exactly a rich rich, rich, resource, lavished organization to begin with. But I would agree that I'm a little bit disappointed with their performance this year, just in the sense that they've developed the car in no meaningful now, way. Now, maybe you year. can disabuse me of this uh, point of view, or maybe you want to agree with me, but uh, do you think that perhaps that my expectations of Alfa Romeo have maybe been inflated a little bit more than they should be based on the success that Charles Leclerc had with him in his rookie season before he was snapped up by Ferrari. Because let's be honest, he was doing things with the C38 or whatever that car was that he probably should not have been doing. I mean, he's just obviously a phenomenal driver. And I think that has maybe colored my expectations of what was Sauber Alfa Romeo then and now is Alfa Romeo Racing, I, I think that it's it's maybe unfairly biased my expectations of what, what I think that they should be doing. I've never made that consideration. And, and I was lucky enough that I could actually see Charles drive live for for Sauber. And back in 2018, it was still Alfa mm-hmm. Romeo Sauber before they kind of more deeply entrenched that Alfa Romeo branding. But I actually did see him race for Alfa Romeo. And you're absolutely right. Like if you look at his performance that season, he finished 13th in the championship. He had one, two, five, six, seven. He had 10 points finishes, finished the championship with 39 points. And I think at that time, you're like, hey, that seems like it's a good performance for a rookie. But in the context of what we're seeing out of Kimi and Giovinazzi right now, that may have been a Herculean performance, ultimately, that he was able to drag, like you said, that C38 to those types of points finishes. And maybe we didn't give him enough credit Mm -hmm. for what he was doing with that car. And maybe Ferrari did see that, which is why they were so quick to bring him up to... Well, did he not also stick that car in Q3 a couple of times as well? I mean, the delta between... 
Yeah. I mean, the delta between himself and his teammate then, Marcus Erickson, who's doing pretty good in IndyCar now, is uh, it was was night and day. I mean, they were were in completely different leagues. But yeah, it was funny. I'd never actually made the connection. But as you were as, as you were talking, it just sort of all of a sudden popped into my mind. And just for context as well, because that was a great point with Marcus Erickson. That season, he had five, six points finishes. He finished with nine points to Charles Leclerc's 39. And again, Charles Leclerc being a rookie in Formula One, not familiar with the tires, the grips, or most of the track. So a pretty phenomenal finish and clearly, clearly warranted that move. So now this is another thing that you may have to correct me on here because uh, unfortunately I don't follow every twist and turn of Marcus Erickson's uh, motor racing career, but was that his last season or did he stick one more year in Formula One before he moved? Yeah, so he finished, so he started 14 with Caterham, 15, yep. 16, 17 with Sauber. In 18, the team began its transition to Alfa Romeo Sauber. And 2018 was absolutely his last season mm-hmm. when he finished 17th in the championship with, like I said, nine points. And then to your earlier point or to your previous point, jumped in 2019 over to Aero Schmidt in Indy and then spent the last- Gosh, you know, that, that's actually gone season. pretty quick because now that I think about it and kind of go back over the past couple of seasons, but- Time, as they say, marches on. And on that note, time for another break. And when we come back, let's jump into the mailbag. We got some great messages, some great emails this week. So we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back in just a moment. Sounds great. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. So where do you want to start? Do you want to go to the DMs first? Do you want to go to the emails? I got that really good message that we have uh, from from Evan. And I think this is one both you and I are fairly eager to discuss. Shall we start there and then uh, move on? Yeah, absolutely. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, uh, So I'll read this one. So this one came from Evan, one of our many amazing Twitter. And I don't like to say followers. I, I prefer to think of us as a community. I f- think sometimes follower is a bit of a disservice because I, I like to think we're really collaborative and interactive, which is why we do the spaces sessions. But anyways, Evan says, Hey guys, I had a question. I'm not sure if you'd like to answer this on the pod or not, but like I said, I'm new to F1. So the first thing I decided to do, I'd feel out a driver or team that I felt most connected to, mm-hmm. which by the way is a really great point because if you're new to the sport, finding that alliance or that loyalty can be a unique journey. But anyways, um, Upon reading about and listening to you guys talk about the drivers on the grid, I have decided that Pierre Gasly really stuck out to me. I always like to root for the underdog and him being demoted by Red Bull, in which I feel was an overreaction to a young driver on the grid with a big team. I feel that he was much more suited for the seat than Albon, which was clearly shown by Albon struggling even more than Pierre did. So I guess my question is this. Pierre fought his way back to a seat in F1. He won in Monza, given he needed a lot to go right and barely held on. But where does he go from here? He seems to have a ton of talent. Does he get a seat with a team that can put him in a position to win a driver's championship in the future? And if so, who does it happen with? And that is so over. To yeah, this friend. is an amazing one. As soon as you sent me this uh, this afternoon, I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk about this because I, I think this is a, a brilliant a summation of the whole Pierre Gasly situation, right? And, and totally, I mean, I think that they pulled the pin on him a, a little bit uh, too quick. I mean, he struggled going into winter testing. He had an accident in Barcelona, and they had, I think they ended up having to sacrifice a bunch of parts that were meant for Max's car, and it seriously affected their, their running and winter testing that year. And he just never really got into a groove with the big Red Bull team. So, it unfortunately 
it, it that the writing on the wall was there that it, it seemed that it was almost inevitable that they were going to pull the plug at some point and, and boot him back down and unfortunately they are those guys now they have that reputation and they've done it a couple of times they've done it to Kvyat they've done it to Gasly they've done it to Albon so I mean anybody coming into that uh, team to take a seat whose name isn't Max Verstappen is probably going to have one eye you know looking you know or looking over their shoulder right but I think that. You know, I, I think what Evan says here, he says, I always like to root for the underdog and him being demoted by Red Bull, in which I feel was an overreaction to a young driver on the grid with a big team. And I totally agree with that. I think that he's just completely nailed it. Now, I, yeah, it, I, I think I that's, uh, you know, agree. a very, very good take on the situation. And I, I think that he's done exceptionally well. I mean, going back, you know, arguably a step down, which obviously it is to Toro Rosso, who I think, I think are kind of underdogs because on their day, they can surprise. I mean, sometimes I don't think they get the most out of their cars because it, you know, tends to be a development team. So, I mean, we've seen flashes of the good and not quite so good with Yuki Sonoda this year. I mean, when he's had his moments, he's been really good. And, you know, when he's been hot, he's been hot. And when he's not, he's not. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, what you're going to get with a young driver, especially in his first season in, in Formula One. But, I think Pierre did the only thing he could do was just maybe lick his wounds, go back, accept the situation. And instead of, you know, feeling sorry for himself, just make the most of the situation and really buckle down and do the best that you can. I mean, clearly there was obviously a bit of good fortune in the way that uh, that the Italian Grand Prix shook out last year. And the, I mean, he really hung on by the, you know, <laughs> by, by tooth and nail to that race victory. But, but I mean, the fact of the matter is, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Great had that re- lap or sorry, that race gone two laps or five laps longer, he would not have won it. But the point is, it didn't, and he won that race, which I think is is amazing. But now the million dollar question is, and you know, Evans asking it is like he, you know, where does he go from here? I mean, I think he's really done a good job to reestablish himself in, in Formula One, but. I really don't see an out for him, unfortunately, at this moment. I mean, they they seem pretty comfortable with uh, with yeah. Pierre. Sorry, with Pierre uh, Perez. Pierre. Sorry, now I'm getting myself all mixed up uh, with, with uh, Sergio Perez at Red Bull. Ferrari's obviously locked up uh, with with Carlos Sainz and uh, and uh, and Leclerc uh, and uh, Mercedes is obviously a question mark and that second seat of uh, Valtteri Bottas that almost seems to be earmarked for for George Russell just given the the the, the connection there and you know honestly right. the way that I see this one shaking out is I think that uh, his time will come but I think he's going to have to be patient for some time yet until he gets an opportunity with Red Bull or maybe an opportunity somewhere else that's just the way that I see it yeah, and to rewind this one, and I, I very much agree with everything that you're saying. For those of you that aren't super familiar with Pierre's backstory, he won the GP2 championship in 2016 with Prima, which is one of the absolute premier uh, organizations in the lower formulas. He won four races that year, took the championship with 219 points, managed to put in a couple of rides with Toro Rosso towards the back of the 2017, 
raced the entire season in 2018 with that team. I think he had five or six points finishes, scored 29 points, which is a terrible for a rookie on, on the Toro Rosso team, especially given the fact that that was the first year that they'd been rocking the Honda engine as Red Bull was making that migration. Uh, for the, those of you that don't know, they actually moved Toro Rosso over to the power unit, the Honda power unit, a year mm-hmm. before they moved the Red Bull team because they wanted to get some familiarity with the engine and how it mattered with their chassis. 2019, so he rocks... He, he spends the entire year 2018 with Toro Rosso. Like I said, five points finishes. 2019 gets promoted to Red Bull. So first race, he finishes 11th. He puts in a couple of points finishes. There's a retirement on Azerbaijan. Then he has six consecutive points finishes, including a fourth place finish at Silverstone. Finishes 14th in Germany. Mm-hmm. And then he finishes sixth in Hungary going into the summer break. Now, this is where it gets a little bit spicy because as he's since said, and it has been quoted, Going into the summer break, he was promised both by Christian Horner and Helmut Marco that his race seat was safe. And again, in reflection, looking back, that's not a bad first half of a year with Red Bull when it's a new car, it's a new power unit, it's a new engineer, it's new aero design. It's not a bad start, but they pulled the plug super early. It created all that chaos. He gets demoted to Toro Rosso. Alex Albon gets brought up. Alex Albon is clearly not ready. And again, all of this to me is a reflection of Helmut Marco's inability to effectively manage the Driver Academy. So it's great. You identified Gasly as a talent. You identified Albon. Albon as a talent, Max as a talent, uh, Daniel Ricardo as a talent. But with the exception of Max Verstappen, you've never been able to nurture them into a position where they're in a meaningful championship battle. So shame on Helmet, shame on Christian Horner. But ultimately, I agree. I think he should have had the opportunity to ride out the rest of that season. It would have eliminated all of the chaos and noise and friction sure. that came throughout 2020 as we all sat here debating how long Alex Albon was going to be able to keep that seat. But to your point, I don't know where that clear next step is for him. I'd love to see him get a premier seat somewhere. I just, I I don't know where that's going to be. And I also don't know that it's necessarily the right move for him to go back to Red Bull because I just, I don't feel that's a team that's great at nurturing drivers. I would hate to see him go there and struggle Mm -hmm. in his first couple of races and the immense pressure that's going to come down. I don't trust that Christian Horner and Helmut Marko are going to be able to develop him further. I think the best thing for him is either to stay where he is, especially if Red Bull are going to continue to invest in that team and try to make it a competitive outfit on its own, or potentially find a race seat somewhere. Yeah, else. absolutely. That's such a great question. And I was just uh, thinking too, uh, just uh, one other thing now, and it's uh, escaped my mind. It seemed brilliant at the time when I was thinking about it. Oh, I know what it was. Is that he just? I mean, it was it was the perfect opportunity for him to go to a team like Red Bull, but the timing, it just it didn't work because he I was agree. coming in to replace Danny Ricardo, which was obviously plan B for them because right up before the Hungarian Grand Prix in 2018, they were all saying that oh, we're, we're just point. literally dotting I's and crossing T's here on a, on a new contract extension for Danny Ricardo. And then uh, out of nowhere, he drops this bomb right after the Hungarian Grand Prix, right in the first week of the summer break saying, you know what, guys, I'm done. I'm going to Renault. And they, they really didn't have any other options. So he's got to go in and fill those shoes, which was always going to be a tough, tough ask of, of that. And unfortunately, I think that Ricardo's totally legacy with, with Red Bull really, I, I think, tainted and really put Pierre Gasly under enormous amount of pressure right from, from, from the get-go. 
You know, that's such a great point and not something that I've really ever considered that his his promotion to Red Bull was a byproduct of the collapse in relationship between Christian Horner, Daniel mm-hmm. Ricardo, and, and Red Bull, right? Like that was never anticipated. And we've talked about this before where Daniel has since said in interviews that, look, I called Christian Horner and I said I was going to Renault and he laughed because he didn't think it was serious. So I think after he, he informs Christian that he's gone, and this of course happened Pretty late in the season in 2018, Christian's scrambling, and they've got this kid in the academy. Mm-hmm. He's ro- driving for Toro Rosso. He's probably not ready, but instinctively, this is also not an organization that signs drivers from other teams. They rely on their academy. He was the next guy up, and whether he was ready or not, he had to come in and fill that seat. And again, in retrospect, looking back at that year, I still don't believe the first half of the campaign was that bad. And I think it was a visceral gut reaction to pressure in the media. They weren't in a meaningful battle for exactly. the instructors anyways. I just yeah, great point. And move. I think that uh, has been so overlooked. And I'm glad that you brought it up because like, why pull the plug on a guy when you're when you're not challenging for a driver's or constructor's uh, championship? I mean, it was still clearly all Mercedes and you, you weren't going to beat them anyway. So why you know why do it then and i mean it's it's been a revolving door i mean finally i i think if you're a fan of uh of, of red bull that you i think you have to have a little bit of um i don't want right. to say uh what, what is the perfect word well let, let's just say you might be feeling a little bit more reassured that that sergio has seemed to really landed on his uh, on word. his feet good word and after maybe a bit of a bumpy start he seems to have uh, really settled in uh, nicely Okay, so which one next? Why don't we do uh, Richard LeBlanc? Because this kind of goes back, and, uh, and he, his uh, emails are so always so nicely uh, worded and uh, thoughtfully uh, phrased. So, so anyways, um, Richard has to say, Hello, Mark and Mark. Thanks for your thorough and thoughtful parsing of the Hamilton-Verstappen incident at the recent British Grand Prix. I have settled down after a couple of tormented days of wringing hands and gnashing teeth over what I saw as an outrageous foul by Hamilton. After listening to your po- podcast and much reflect and reflection, pardon me, I have to say I agree with Mark Daly that this was a racing incident. I still believe that Hamilton was mostly responsible for the crash. He did not intend to contact, but intentionally took a wide apex to force Verstappen as far to the outside as possible. Hamilton positioned his car, knowing Verstappen would either have to back off or drive down the, or drive off the track. What he did is uh, when he did neither, the inevitable occurred. But to paraphrase Mr. Daly, this is racing. In fact, the episode of Cops demonstrated the very essence of racing because car racing in the, these intense and frantic moments of wheel-to-wheel combat is aggressive, is violent, and potentially very, very dangerous. That is why we love it and are enthralled by it, and that is why we call it motorsport. The FIA has to balance how much they want to interfere with the driver's will to race in order to keep the sport safe. As we saw in Austria, too much interference dulls the spectacle. However, as we can see from this highly entertaining debate, the regulators actually define what F1 is, and in this case, I think they nearly struck the correct balance. Very good. Yeah, I have I have nothing uh, to, to to add to that, but I just had to work in an email that had wringing of hands and gnashing of teeth. But I, I think it's a you know a good uh, I think it's a good email. So it was a tremendous email, exceptionally well articulated. Obviously, he lavishes praise on you <laughs> and your commentary. But I would also just like to add that we got a lot of emails and DMs over the last couple of days that started very similar to that. Like guys. Great, big fans of the podcast, love everything you're doing. Uh, Great insight breaking down the race. 
dot, 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 but you're idiots <laughs> and you're totally wrong. And here's a really technical explanation as to why. And again, this this is fun, right? It's like, it's okay sure. to have opinions and to not necessarily agree on everything. It's just, it was shame that it became so visceral on the weekend, yep. like we talked about off the top, but great email, amazingly articulate, super, super, super. Yeah. And I, I totally love the, you know, having like opposing uh, opinions and perspectives as long as everybody keeps it uh, civil, which, you know, for, for the most part has been uh, pretty good. I mean, uh, you know, our our community rocks, so totally you know they're agree. they're they're the best for this sort of things. Okay, so do we want to go it. to Diego's or why don't we go to JJ and H Town? We haven't heard from JJ in a while. Anyways, yeah. Anyways, H-Town. JJ has to say, uh, Mark and Mark, can you guys elaborate more on the problems related to dirty air with F1 cars? Specifically, my question is: When racing behind another driver, do you want to follow closely to get in its uh, slipstream? Or should you be concerned about maintaining the air intake system of your own vehicle? Uh, still loving the show as always. Thanks, JJ from Houston. So this is a kind of an interesting question from a couple of points of uh, view, because are you asking this question in 2021 or are you looking ahead to 2022? But I guess the basics are going to be the same and, and you're looking awfully thoughtful and ready to go. So, so, okay. Oh, okay. No, I'm not, I'm not, I was, I was. It's it's one of those moments when you're in the class and you're like, don't like hopefully the teacher doesn't pick on me and you're looking out the window and you're sharpening your pencil and all that other kind of stuff. But I would love sure. Well, I, I think that uh, the the way that these cars are structured and built to right now is they really kick off a lot of uh, dirty air. So the biggest problem is that this this air awake behind it, the disturbance, the turbulence, really makes it difficult from for the car following to get closer or follow close to the car in front of them. And if they do get closer, right. then they're going to pay a price in that. Of course, your brakes are going to overheat. You're going to get a lot of hot, dirty air going into your, in through your own intakes, into the side pods, and into your into your engines. You're going to suffer. Right. Your your tires are going to pay a price as well. And ultimately, the longer that you stay too close to the car in front of you, and that's why you see that these guys will back off. You'll see them get to really close for a number of, uh, uh, you know, a number of laps, and then sometimes you see them start to ease off. Sometimes right. to a second and a half, two seconds, two and a half, three seconds, where they're they're close, but they're not too close. They're kind of in that that, that Goldilocks zone that they're they're still in contact with the car in front of them, but you know they're not quite uh, close enough to to maybe make an overtake. Or you know the 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 other thing is too they're not really right. sacrificing their their car too much and that is the big reason why we're going to see this new formula uh, starting next year. With we've seen the radical mock up that they released before the British Grand Prix last year with these very different looking front wings, the rear wings, the the very almost redefined, very sleeker looking side pods and just the bodywork in general that are really going to clean up the air around this car that is going to make it easier for them uh, to follow, but. If you do get in the slipstream, you do get in the toe, especially going down some of these longer straights like in Azerbaijan, uh, down Hangar Strait, um, any of the long straightaways that you, you can think of in Formula One, when you can get that toe, and then uh, hopefully by the time you get to the end of the the, the, the pits uh, straight, and if you have DRS as well, that you're able to close that gap and then hopefully make uh, a move uh, to, to dive into the corner and get around your opponent in front. So I don't know if you've got uh, anything to, to add to that, but that that's a great one because there, this is 
there no, is a lot more job. to do uh, with this uh, discussion and to do so we've actually th- this is a bit of a teaser to one of our shows coming up in the next couple of weeks that we're going to have over the summer break and uh, i'm not going to give away the guest or the topics but we do we've already recorded the show and it's going to drop uh, in a couple of weeks and we talk about this at length so you know look out for that one jj and everybody else because uh, that's going to be a really really good uh, discussion question. yeah again F1 2022 primer episode will drop this summer. It's in the books. It's fantastic. It really takes this question and looks at it in much greater detail. But I think in the meantime, you did a cool. great job addressing Okay, it. so the next one, last, definitely not uh, least, uh, comes from Diego. And Diego has to say, hello, Mark and Mark. While I know that the subject uh, to this email is clickbait, just hear or read me out. <laughs> it wasn't clickbait, uh, Diego. Always love it. Anyways. Okay, we'll try. Anyways, we'll he try. Says, I'm a machinist that works for Roosh. A co-worker of mine was the one that introduced me to DTS, him being a fan of F1 since the 90s at least. F1 has now become one of my favorite sports. Anyways, these last few days, I can't help but think that maybe there is a way for Roosh as a brand to join F1. We already have a NASCAR team. Sure, maybe uh, co-owned, but that's where my idea comes in. Maybe a partnership with Haas. Haas is in a lot of uh, need of a lot of resources and money and whatnot. This partnership with it can help Roosh as a branding globally. We already have our own version of Mustangs. A great relationship with Ford doesn't hurt either. Formula One is only going to grow bigger in the States. I guess the point of this email is to maybe hear your thoughts since you guys are way more knowledgeable of what some uh, logistics may be. I'm seriously considering making a PowerPoint to see if I can show it to our manufacturing manager and see if it goes up the ladder. Anyways, thanks for the awesome content you guys create and for being the home of Gen DTS. P.S. Don't change the intro music. So cool. Awesome. Love this email. And I was really excited when when I read this one and I started thinking thinking about it. And who knows what Gene Haas is thinking. I I still think that he's kind of sort of just uh, keeping the seat warm. He's writing the checks, doing what he needs to do. And (laughs) excuse me. And if somebody comes along with a checkbook and offers to buy the team that he'll just, um, you know, sell up and, and move on. But I couldn't help but think that maybe this is the kind of partnership that a team like Haas might be and I was, or, or might need because you know, like, and I'm not going to point the finger specifically at Ford or any other American car company manufacturer and, and put them on blast for any success or lack thereof in Formula One past or present or future or may, maybe any reluctance to join the sport because that's not related to any one manufacturer to any one time frame or any one uh, country. I mean, we've seen some that have been more successful than others and uh, others have kind of come in and come out. I mean, one manufacturer for me that is what was a big disappointment was uh, was BMW. I was really excited when they came into the sport and I was really disappointed when they uh, pulled out and left. But I couldn't help but thinking that maybe that a partnership for Haas or a team like it with somebody like Roosh is exactly what it needs. Because, I mean, let, let's just face it, the, 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 the knowledge, the ingenuity, the expertise... And just the people involved in the automotive industry in the United States is absolutely massive. And while I I don't know how feasible it is for maybe a manufacturer to get involved, I think that this is something potentially very, very exciting. And I just can't help but think, just uh, like uh, Diego says in his uh, email, that that maybe there's really something here that, uh, that, that people somewhere up the chain really need to take a look at to see, is this something worth doing? 
I, I love the idea of Diego being in a position where he can put together a PowerPoint presentation and yep. get it in front of some executives and just sell them like, hey, guys, here's a potential business plan to get involved with Formula One. Talk about Formula One. The upward trajectory in the U.S. is is obviously very, very significant. Maybe maybe a better fit for this organization, at least initially, is, is IndyCar, a spec racing series. But I think it's exciting to talk about what the ceiling potentially is for Formula One in the U.S. And we talk about the number of events. We're going to Miami. We've got a race in Austin that's becoming more and more successful by the year. We saw how quickly it sold out this year. We talk about the potential for a third race, coming to the West Coast, going to the Northeast, whatever the case may be. But I think one of the things that we really need to see is a really successful U.S.-based yes. team. Haas has been an unmitigated disaster, whether it's their partnership with Mazapan and his oligarch father, whether it was the relationship with Rich Energy, <laughs> whether it's been some of the on-track issues. This, this organization's been a mess. I think Gene Haas is probably greatly embarrassed by what's transpired. But at the same time, he's not also been investing in it the way you need to to be successful in Formula One. And part of it could be that he said, hey, look, I came into the sport. I recognize that the sport's transitioning to a cost certainty era with the cost cap. I'm just going to ride it out until we get there. I'm just going to cost control as much as I can, regardless of what the impact is from a a performance perspective, from a grid perspective, from a championship perspective. I'm just going to ride it out, get to the cost cap era, and hopefully things kind of work themselves out. Whether, whether there's a partnership opportunity here or not, I don't know. My sense is Gene Haas is either all in or all out, that he's probably not looking for another U.S. partner. But that's not to say that that Roush Fenway could potentially not put together a package and enter F1. And again, one of the principal reasons for the cost cap and all of the different changes that they're introducing in 2022 through the sporting and technical regulations is they want to introduce cost certainty to the sport to make it more attractive to new teams to come. Because you can't be in a position where year to year you have some teams with 1,200 full-time employees and some with 200 mm-hmm. that are hemorrhaging cash because they're so uncompetitive on the track, they're not earning any championship money. Like They, they need to iron all of this so, and ultimately, for instance, if I was to invest in a major league sports team, I'm looking to the NFL, I'm looking to the NBA because there's cost certainty, there's salary caps, there's all these kind of measures in place to ensure that I can be financially viable. Formula One's never had any of that. They've never had any of that. It's a sharky shark world. I don't know if that's an expression. It's a sharky dog world. Ultimately, if you're Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, you're going to be successful. But if you're a Williams, you're a Haas, it's going to be very, very, very difficult to turn around your fortunes because you can't tank your way to a top draft pick to become competitive again. Again, I think to get back to Diego's original point, I would love to see this this organization, this company get involved. I don't know that they necessarily will. I believe they exited the NASCAR Xfinity Series a little while ago. I'm not super familiar with where they're fielding teams right now. I know that historically they've always partnered really closely with with Ford, which isn't necessarily a bad thing if you want to appeal to American fans. But then again, maybe there's something there and maybe ultimately the way that Ford becomes a successful OEM in F1 once again is by partnering with one Mm -hmm. of these big American companies because Ford's obviously a big brand in the US has been very successful with NASCAR. But yeah, I would love I would love to see a successful American team because like I said, Haas has been nothing in terms of what we expected. They haven't been developing American drivers. They haven't established an American driver academy. They're effectively driving a race car right now that's wearing a Russian <laughs> flag. It's And I'm going to say it out loud. I think Haas has been an embarrassment. It has not been to F1 what F1 yeah. needed it to be. And fortunately, in spite, or not in spite, yeah, in spite of what Haas has done, 
Formula One's continued to make inroads in the U.S. marketplace from a viewership perspective and from an interest perspective. But that's in spite of the things that Haas has or hasn't done. But again, would love to see a really in spite of or despite of. I don't know which way it goes, but I. I yeah. don't know either, actually. I think I think it's in spite, but I was going to use the two interchangeably. So well, I let my I Canadian show when I said Roosh rather than Roush, but, uh, you know, what, whatever, you know. It, Canadian is as Canadian yeah, does, yeah. eh? But uh, I was just going to say uh, that, yeah, no, I, I think it really is a, you know, that this sort of scenario, be it them or another organiz- uh, organization, may be a way for the, the American automotive industry to really put a footprint on modern Formula One. Because let's face it, people are smart. Sports fans are smart. They, they've seen what Haas have done. I mean, they, they had a real... I think they really had a tantalizing start to Formula One. I think they got some people excited with some good early results, and then it quickly uh, fizzled out. But I mean, people uh, seeing you know all the the silly things that have happened with um, you know like like the whole rich energy thing, which I've never seen a can of rich energy drink anywhere, which is a you know another story. But I, I think that this might be the way to to do it because people have seen what has have done and what they've been doing. And I think the the synopsis is whether they're a long term Formula One fan or Gen DTS. I think a lot of people are just like meh, not feeling it. Exactly. I, I, again, if you're going to use Haas as a marketing vehicle to attract new teams to F1, it's not going to work. 2016, despite to your point, they scored a couple of points finishes early in the season. People were freaking out. Look, we need to change the we need to change the regulations. You can't have a team come in and buy so many pieces from Ferrari. They're going to be too successful too soon. Ultimately, the performance flattened out and they finished eighth in the championship, finished eighth in 2017. Uh, Meg had shared again, reminded us earlier this evening on the spaces call, they had a pretty yep. strong 2018 when they finished fifth in the championship, but ultimately their chassis fell apart and they collapsed in 19, 20 and 21 has been a total disaster. But for F1, you need to be able to say to a potential new entrant that, Hey, look, you could come in. There's cost certainty. You could become competitive. You can win. You can be successful because again, even with a cost cap of $145 million, if you're going to join the sport, there's a sunk cost of hundreds sure. of millions of dollars to build a factory, to recruit people to buy the machining to create an engine uh relation or to buy a to create a relationship with an engine supplier like it's really expensive to enter formula one and nobody's going to do that unless they can see that there's cost certainty that there's a pathway to being successful and if you look at haas again they entered at the wrong time no cost cap no cost certainty but they're a terrible story for why you should come in and enter Formula Yeah, hey Mark, just before team. we wrap things up, uh, Guitar Gill in the uh, the live chat in uh, in YouTube says, "Has anyone seen a can of Husky chocolate?" And they're a sponsor of of a McLaren. <laughs> That's yeah, so McLaren. You know, I, so I haven't, true. but I do remember looking it up online, and I can't remember where you could pick it up. And I, I almost want to say I think I could have found it locally, but it was it was kind of. Let's let's say it was a little bit off the beaten track. <laughs> That's a great point uh, as well. Anyways, guys, thank you all for the emails and all the messages and stuff like that. Uh, I see that we're starting to Thanks, kind of come to the end of the time that we're going to spend together tonight. So we've got a lot more. And because we don't have a race this weekend, we're going to hang on to the, uh, the some of these other ones. We'll talk about them when we come back on Monday night. 
So let's uh, wrap it up uh, right there. And uh, again, thank you all for for downloading, listening to the show. Thank you for the messages. Thank you for watching on YouTube. Thank you for any reviews or ratings you might have left on Apple Podcasts or any of the other podcast uh, platform. You guys are the best. We really appreciate it. Yes, follow us of on course. Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. Become join the community. Absolutely, the community. at Scootery F1 Pod is the Twitter handle. Also, if you want to get in touch via email, you can Thanks do so, so much, at f one Pod at gmail.com. And that's it on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we will see you on Monday night. Bye for now.